Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we're going to be talking about the Electoral College. What is it? What does it do? Why does it do it? And is it a good thing? So joining me to have this discussion is first from Alec, our Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force. Carla Jones, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Dan. Of course. And joining us is John Ryder. John, you are a very interesting guest to have join this discussion for two very important reasons. First, you're the former general counsel of the Republican National Committee, and, and I think our listeners will really like this part, you've actually been an elector in the Electoral College for Tennessee on two different occasions. So, John, thank you so much for calling in. I'm really excited to have this chat with you. Happy to be here, Dan. Of course. Thank you. So, a lot of our listeners are policy wonks. They're probably familiar with the Electoral College. But if they are, they're likely just familiar with what it is, maybe even perhaps what its process is, how it acts. But I think it's important for us to begin by setting the foundation of the Electoral College. So, John, for our listeners who maybe aren't super wonky with the Electoral College, or maybe who'd like to learn a little bit more, but they do know some information, can you talk to our listeners about how the Electoral College came to be and what it was supposed to do? Well, uh, that's, Dan, that's, that, that is exactly where we ought to begin at the beginning uh, with the Constitution and the great compromise that created a House of Representatives based on population and a United States Senate based on state representation. And the reason that's so important is that that's at the heart of the Republican nature of American government, that this is a compound, complex federal republic that has both state governments and national governments, that it has our separation of powers, and that even within the legislative branch, there's this division, this compromise uh, between those at the Constitutional Convention that wanted the legislative branch to be based solely on population and those who wanted it to be like the Continental Congress was with one vote for every state. And you can imagine, Dan, which states favored representation by population. That would be the states that had the most population. And the states that favored representation on a state-by-state basis tended to be the smaller states that would have been overwhelmed by the large states in those days, Virginia and Massachusetts. So let me tell you how that ties into the, the Electoral College. So that's the foundation. So when the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were selecting a means of, of, of determining who would be the president, um, they combined those two. And so the Electoral College, the representation in the Electoral College, is based on a combination of the state's representation in the House, that is by population, and two votes based on its representation in the Senate, that's by virtue of its existence as a state. And so that determines the representation in the Electoral College. The second thing that the founders determined in creating the Electoral College is they wanted it to be a body that was different, that was not composed of the legislative branch, uh, because they were fearful that 
if Congress elected the president, then Congress would be beholden to the president or the president would be beholden to Congress. And uh, that that would negate the separation of powers between the executive and the legislative. So you brought up the very important point of how the Electoral College was a compromise between those two ideas of popular election that we discuss and we see today in the House of Representatives and the original uh, discussion of how the Senate was to be elected, where, um, for those who are not aware, before the 17th Amendment was enacted, senators were actually elected by their state legislatures. So you had two legislative bodies, one that was the people's body and one that was the state's body. And I, as a guy who likes constitutional history, I really like that uh, formation because it seems to be how our constitution was originally envisioned, where it was this combination, this compact between the states, but also between the people themselves. That's why you see amendments having to be ratified and things like that. But the question I have uh, for you, John, is does the 17th Amendment play at all into the Electoral College? Well, in the sense that you have just raised, that that um, prior to the 17th Amendment, the senators were elected by the legislatures of the respective states and therefore were truly representatives of that state's government um, in Washington rather than being elected directly by the people of the state, which puts them more in the category of kind of super representatives, that is, uh, congressmen with larger districts. And I think that that changed the nature of senatorial representation. But it it doesn't alter the representation in the Electoral College. And since the electors are not the senators, not the congressmen. In fact, if you hold an office of trust or responsibility under the federal government, you can't be an elector. Uh, So uh, you have to be independent of the government in order to serve as an elector. And those electors, but the representation in the electoral college is by state based on this combination of population, and then the two for senatorial representation. John, thanks so much for taking the time to be part of this podcast. And I was wondering, as a former elector, what happens if an elector doesn't vote the way a state does? Oh, that's, that's a great question. In fact, that is pending before the Supreme Court this term. Hmm. And in fact, today, uh, which is uh, April 13th, the Supreme Court just issued an order that it's going to take some hearings by telephonic uh, conference. And these cases involving what's called a faithless elector are going to be among those heard by the Supreme Court. Here's the issue, Carla, is electors are elected by slates. Uh, The slates are generally nominated by the political parties of that state. So the Republican Party of Uh, Virginia nominates a slate of electors pledged to Donald Trump. The Democratic Party of Virginia uh, nominates a slate of electors pledged to Joe Biden. Uh, Whoever carries the state uh, gets the most votes, the plurality or the majority in the state of Virginia, then all of the electors on that candidate's slate 
uh, become the electors from that state. They'll meet in the state capitol. They'll cast their ballots. And they're supposed to cast their ballots for the uh, popular vote winner in their state. Uh, from time to time, uh, one or more electors have said, well, I'm not going to vote for the candidate for whom I was elected. I'm going to vote for somebody else. That has never affected the outcome, but it has happened from time to time. As a result, some states, in this case particularly Colorado and uh, Washington, have enacted uh, laws which uh, bind the elector to the vote of the people of their respective states. A um, couple of electors didn't want to follow the law, uh, challenged it in court. In Washington state, the case went to the Washington state Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the state and said, no, Mr. Elector, you have to follow the law. You have to vote for the candidate for whom you were elected as an elector. In Colorado, uh, the elector challenged the law, uh, won in the United States District Court, and then that decision was appealed to the Tenth Circuit. Tenth Circuit reversed the District Court and said, yes, Mr. Elector, you are a free agent once you've been elected, and you can vote for anyone you choose. So the issue is now before the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, that decision uh, will come out in this term uh, before the election. Some federalism issues seem to have universal appeal, unfunded mandates, for example, and others are a lot more divisive. The Electoral College appears to be a lot more partisan, with DNC Chair Tom Perez even saying that the Electoral College isn't a creation of the Constitution. How could the two major American political parties address the Electoral College in party platforms and on the campaign trail? Well, that's, that's uh, very simple. Uh, the Republican Party platform that was adopted in convention in 2016 contains an explicit statement in support of the Electoral College and its continued use in our political system. The Democrats do not favor retention of the Electoral College. And in fact, H.R. 1, which was uh, introduced in the House of Representatives at the beginning of this session, uh, proposed the uh, elimination of the Electoral College. I believe Elizabeth Warren, when she was campaigning, when she was a candidate for president, said, if elected, I will be the last president elected by the Electoral College. Uh, across the board, Democrats have campaigned uh, for the abolition of the Electoral College, its replacement by some form of national popular vote tally. And the Republicans, on the other hand, uh, have vigorously supported uh, the retention of the Electoral College. When I served on the Republican National Committee, uh, we adopted a resolution by the RNC uh, unanimously uh, supporting the retention of the Electoral College. Do you have a ready answer for people who point to the presidential elections of 2000-2016 as evidence to claim that the Electoral College is anti-democratic? We get that question sometimes. Well, my answer to that, Carla, is very simple. Yes, it is anti-democratic. It's supposed to be anti-democratic. 
the founders were fearful of uh, democracy as being a vehicle for the tyranny of the majority. And so the Electoral College, along with the Congress of the United States, contains both Democratic and Republican elements. And when I say that, I mean you have popular representation in the House, and that's the major component of the Electoral College, but you also have state representation in the Senate, and that is an additional feature of the Electoral College. What this does is it forces the candidates to create a coalition that is not just centered on large population centers or a particular region of the country. It forces the candidates to seek a broadly dispersed coalition that spans this entire continent, not just a localized majority. In 1787, the problem was Virginia and Massachusetts. Today, I think most people would acknowledge the problem. And it's, I'm not saying these states are problems, but the population concentration is California and New York. Without the Electoral College, those population centers would have the tendency to overwhelm the interests of smaller states and communities. And it seems that the Electoral College for years received very little notice, and recently it's under attack. What are some of the leading efforts to defend it? Well, there is a, uh, an organization called Save Our States, which has um, been very active. I believe uh, Trent England is the head of that. The Heritage Foundation has published a number of papers and uh, produced a series of uh, panel discussions and lectures in defense. Uh, the Republican Party, through its platform and through the activities of its national committee, have taken strong stands in support. Um, but the Electoral College, because it is not completely understood, uh, not taught actively in uh, civics classes, needs all the help it can get. It needs defenders who will understand that this is a republic, not a democracy. And it is a complex and compound republic. And one of the fascinating things about our system of government is that ours, as you well know, is the second oldest written constitution in the world. Only Iceland has an older written constitution. Uh, but ours has been in existence. We have had one form of government, one republic under one constitution for 230 years. Now, think about this. France, in the same span of two centuries, has had two monarchies, one empire, and five republics. We've had one republic. That's an incredibly stable form of government. And I think you tinker with the mechanisms of that government, like the Electoral College, at great peril, great peril to the continuation of the Republic. So, John, we are coming down to the end of our segment today. And before we close, I wanted to ask a question that kind of directs toward our base of listenership. So, we are the largest voluntary membership organization of state legislators in the country, um, which naturally means we have a, state, a lot of state legislators who tune into across the states. 
and its state legislators who are on the front lines a lot of the times when it comes to elections um, in the Constitution. I'm sure you can elaborate on this better than I can, but the times elections are discussed in the Constitution for the president and for senators and representatives are left to state management. So you've got your state audience here. What's the one thing you want to make sure they walk away with uh, from this discussion? Well, the state legislators need to understand that the Constitution gives them the exclusive and plenary authority to select the method uh, for determining who will be an elector from their state. That's why I think that the uh, states, rather than the electors, have the better argument in the cases before the Supreme Court. It's up to the state legislature to determine whether the electors are bound. 31 states bind their electors. The rest do not. That's a state legislative decision. 48 states select their electors statewide at large. Mm. Two do not. Maine and Nebraska select them by congressional districts with the two senatorial electors being elected at large. That's a legislative decision. So this is power that is granted to the legislature and the legislators, and uh, they have a grave responsibility here. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. It's why this conversation is so important for all of our um, state policy wonks and our state legislators listening. So, John, once again, thank you for coming on. We've been having John Ryder, who's the former general counsel of the Republican National Committee, and he's actually been an elector for Tennessee on two different occasions in the Electoral College. John, thank you so much for calling in for this podcast. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And of course, as always, one of my favorite guests to have on is our own senior director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, Carla Jones. Thank you so much for organizing this and uh, getting John on the podcast. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Dan, for pulling all this together. Of course. And if you are interested in having your idea featured on ALEC Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 